When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, this is the Two Guys from Hollywood podcast, a Spotify and Villa Romana network production. I'm Alan Evans. And I'm Joey Sanders. Well, good afternoon, Joey. Good afternoon, Alan. How are things? Things are good. Yeah? Yes. Anything fun and happening? Uh, I wouldn't say fun, but I've been, I've had an extremely busy um, couple of weeks, actually. So uh, a friend of mine... For a long time, she passed away. A longtime friend uh, passed away recently. So uh, her children asked me to help with um, sorting her things. Mm-hmm. So that's been quite an undertaking. So, yeah. Well, that's never fun. No, it's not. But, you know, it's not unfun. I mean, it is kind of unfun. It's not fun. Well, it's not fun, <laughs> but I know what you mean. But it's not fun. But, you know, there are a lot of memories attached to it. Yes. So that's kind of nice to be able to revisit some of those things as you go through her home and, you know, her, her things, you know. And I've been photographing everything and cataloging things Oh, wow. Things that was for, a big undertaking. Yes. No pun intended. Undertaking. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, it is a bit. <clears throat> because she had, you know, I mean, this is a woman that lived a very good life. And for very many years, she was in her 90s when she died. Right. So there's a lot of history a lot of mystery a lot of you know things that you know you go through and you have to be respectful to so i've been doing that and it's interesting i have a friend who's an antique dealer he's going to do me a favor and walk through with me tomorrow so we can pin a few things and see what if they're very worthy of certain value you right. know, financial value so he's going to help me with that because what I don't want to do is make the mistake of just give things away or, ha- or have the family. And you know how the family can be come through and I want that, I want that, I want that. Right. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, that maybe should be sold. Right. Do you know what I mean? So that you can all enjoy it. Yeah. So, I mean, right. You know, and there are some things, of course, that are going to have sentimental value and all right. of that stuff. And so I just want to do this properly. So when... When it, it comes time to do that, it's just not what happened to this, what happened to that, or right. You know, well, if they so. do sell it, is the money going to the children? Yeah, it'll go to oh. the family or oh, okay. wherever. You oh. know, I, I don't think they, none of them, were, you know, were, are not taken care of well. It's just a matter of whatever those sentimental values are, and then whatever things that could have some monetary value that may be more than just what you would think. I mean, there's a lot of art. There's a lot of, you know. Um, Objects, uh, objects of art, you know, things like that that may have diff- a different value and statues and bronzes and things like right. that. So I want to make sure. And if they want to sell them, I want to make sure that they're sold in the right way or to the right people. So it's just not some sort of estate sale or garage sale or throw it, you know, or donate it to the, you know, the needy. Because the needy, the last thing they need is a bronze statue that's worth $20,000. Yeah. Well, actually, well, if you want to drop it down and out of the closet, I could, I'll go in there and pick it up for 50 cents. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what I'm trying to avoid because, uh, you know, sometimes you just don't know what things are worth. And right. I mean, my first reaction was to let's send it to the, you know, the Jewish society. Let's send some to the AIDS thing. Let's go here. Let, let's find a bunch of different. And I've done that already. I've, just today alone, I, I boxed uh, 15 boxes that are going over to the, the, uh, the Jewish center. And then I had a whole bunch um, the other day that I took over to Out of the Closet. And so I've been doing that. But it's those things of, that could be of value, which I don't know what that right. value might be. I want to make sure that I bring somebody in that does before I just hand it off. Yeah, so that's of what I've been doing. That's why I'm all dusty and crusty and, and uh, yeah. Musty. I need a shower and <clears throat> tequila. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, we went to um, the Hollywood Bowl last night to see Maxwell. Did you now? Loved it. Loved it. What loved about it, loved fat it. pink or pink fat or pink what? sweaty fat or pink sweats or the guy that opened for him? 
pink sweat. No, it was a woman. It was a oh. woman who did. Uh, Maybe he wasn't asked. Her back. name was Ravenna, and she was a very sort of a metaphysical, and it had a little bit of a of a Hawaii feeling. I don't know why, but it was it was it, she was quite good, and it was interesting, and she opened for him. But and he was, I have to say, he you know I, I've liked his music always, but to see him in person, you left the concert feeling even better about him. He's very grateful, and he's you know he's uh, you know sort of kind and loving, and that his whole energy is you know sort of peaceful and good and and of course he has that amazing voice. Yeah, so. and his music is good. I mean, it's yeah. sexy too. And girls go a little Wild. bit cuckoo for him. Yeah, yeah, and so do certain guys. So it was a lot of fun. We had a really nice time. And, of course, it was a beautiful evening. It couldn't have been more perfect, actually. So. Well, that reminds me. You know, we went to see Michael Feinstein um, just a couple of days ago on Friday, I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. He directed or the Thursday orchestra or, or something, Saturday. Right? No, it was Saturday. Wasn't he conducting? Yeah, the... conducting in Pasadena, the Pasadena Pops. It was their last show of the season. And it was really beautiful. Uh, Christine Ebersol, um was invited there. She sang, and they did uh -huh. a duet, and she did a couple of numbers. And um, Cheyenne Jackson, he's an incredible crooner, the actor. So he did a couple of numbers. It was great. Okay. And then the, the best part of the evening, you know, we, our friend Donnell Dadigan, who owns the museum, who you met uh, through me. You know, she owns the Hollywood Museum. Oh, yes. Max Factor Building. She underwrote the whole evening. So we had the center table right by the stage. And then afterwards, um, Michael Feinstein invited us to dinner at his home for a, a midnight supper mm -hmm. and cocktails over at his home. And his home is spectacular. Yeah, I've seen the photos. It is absolutely spectacular. Yeah. So that was a, quite a treat. And it was a lovely evening. And we stayed out really late and got tipsy. And, and it, was, it was fun. So, uh, Anything you've seen recently that you... By the way, you had mentioned a couple weeks ago on the podcast that, to watch something called Last Call. Yeah, did this, you ever watch it? I did. I thought it was quite good about the, the serial murderer. Right. And uh, I watched all four episodes, as did Will, and I thought it was very good. You were right. It's interesting how they sort of go about it because each episode is really about one of the different murders that, that they yeah. follow. And so I thought that was quite good. And they took, it took a long time for them to find him. Eight years before they got a, they before yeah. well you know what it was is like with a lot of things it was the new ability to test fingerprints on plastic, Correct. and that's how they got him because he'd actually the crazy thing is he'd actually murdered the two guys in his college dorm and for some reason wasn't prosecuted or they decided it wasn't on purpose or whatever but they had taken his fingerprints for that and that was in 1973 and. They didn't capture him until, what, 1989 or 1990, yeah, whatever it was, like all those years later. Mm -hmm. And that was because they had new, uh, a new ability, and his, the match came up on just one thing, and that's what it was. Wow. It was kind of all stroke of luck, really, on the cop side. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so that was kind of interesting. And then, you know, we love our horror movies, so we went to see The Nun 2 over the weekend which did really well at the box office. And, <laughs> you know, it's in that whole Conjuring series, which we like. The reviewers didn't like it. The audiences liked it in the reviews, and we agreed more with the audience. Yes, it didn't have fresh things or new, but it was still, it was, you know, it was fun, and it was, hmm. it had its moments of, you know, scariness. So we had a good time. <laughs> good. Isn't there a new Exorcist out? Yes, I believe it's next week, actually. Oh, no, it's not until November, I think. Okay, I'll, yeah, I'll yeah. be avoiding that. I, I still have, I'm still traumatized from the first oh, the one when I was a child. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like things like that. Monsters don't scare me, Frankenstein or werewolf, none of that. Yeah. But for some reason, anytime it has something to do with that. That religious undertone? Yeah, and I'm not religious at all. That's the thing. But it's something about that. That demonic thing that yeah. just flips me out. Yeah. No, I, I get that. All right. We have to do our stink list. We're going to oh, keep yes. up with our stink list. Yes. And I'm going to let you start. Okay. So it's the stink thing that I found was quite stink. Um, I was watching CNN, and it turned out that it's Anderson Cooper's 20-year um, anniversary with CNN. So they ran... 
uh, you know, a bunch of episodes, his big episodes when he was in New Orleans with the hurricane and, you know, all the things that he's, the reporting that he's done, these big His, big like, things. highlights. Highlights. Yeah. Yeah, which are, are good because I, I enjoy his reporting. Um, but the stink thing is the giggle. <laughs> and, of course, they highlighted that because that became a big, big thing when he was like... <laughs> That is stink. <laughs> so there you go. Sorry, Anderson, but the giggle is stink. stink. Yeah, the giggle stink. What's yours? Well, there's been a lot of reporting coming from the Venice Film Festival, which just ended. And uh, not only, you know, are they reviewing the movies, and of course, there's the big, there's the big thing about. Um, Woody Allen showing his new movie there, which some of the reviews said is one of his best movies ever. And of course, they're also reviewing Roman Polanski's new movie. And the two of them, of course, caught up in their little, their, their, you know, are they pedophiles? Are they molesters? You know, what are they? Rapists? And then, of course, Roman got the worst. They say it's one of the worst movies he's ever made. But... Out of all of this, of course, was Kanye West and that new wife, wife of his uh, were in Venice, and they got into a little bit of trouble. Uh, first of all, you know, having sex on one of the water taxis, and the company told them they could never use one of their taxis again. But you know, him is that the, where he was sitting on the edge yeah. with the ass crack? With the plumber's crack, but I mean a plumber's crack. Well, I don't know if it was the exact same moment, but yeah, you know, he's been all over Venice and with the, you know, the crazy clothes that I know he thinks he's a designer, but they're, they're not even attractive. They're not even fun. They're just sort of it's crazy. dirty and it's gross. Yeah. And, you know, and her with the exposure and the thing, it's all just so tacky and disgusting. It's just... There's nothing appealing about it. I, I don't find him appealing anyway. I, all his antics and craziness doesn't, you know, doesn't, doesn't work for me. So we're not having him on the show anytime apparently, soon. <laughs> apparently we're not now. Or her. But, well, you never know. They might want to come on and tell us off, and we can take it. <laughs> but, uh, so I found that sort of stink. But I think this, the sex act, that they were sort of the sex act on the taxi where children and everybody could see them, which is why the Italians got really bent out of shape. They were like, you know, keep it in private. Why are you doing this out in public? And so I, I just find that so um, it's disrespectful to the people around you yeah. to think that, oh, I'm so grand and I'm such a big star. I can do anything I want and I don't care about anybody around me. That stink. And on and in a water taxi. And a water taxi. Who wants to see that? Well, who wants to see it anyway with him and her? It's like, ooh. But I, I just, I find the disrespect because yeah. you think that you're so grand and that you're God's gift to the world. I find that really stink. Yeah, I agree. That's a stink. Book. But, you know, and also they got in a little bit of trouble too for indecent exposure, the way that girl dresses already. And, you know, Italy is, let's forget, let's not forget, this is a Catholic Country major. Yeah. Well, and, and by the know, way, she does, her dress is ridiculous. not great. He walks around with a pillow? What are you, four? No, the whole thing is absurd. They're, they're absurd. But anyway, um, enough of them. We've already given them more time than they're worth. <laughs> they're stink. Stink. We've got, we're going to get going here because we've yeah, got we a really should. good a... interview today. Yeah. And I'm going to give a little... Uh, a little introduction to who we have on so that people understand who, who this is and when we come back from the break and start interviewing him. But his name is um, Miles Taylor, and he's written his second book called Blowback, which has just come out. But you, you, most people will remember him as the whistleblower on the Trump administration. He was uh, working for Trump, in the Homeland Security, I believe as director of Homeland Security. And he wrote an unsigned essay from within the Trump administration blowing the whistle on the White House misconduct. He detailed the president's character defects and the administration and the chaos going on within. And also he exposed the alarming views of Trump's own cabinet members, 
some of who contemplated invoking the 25th Amendment to remove him from office for instability. And you probably remember that there was this discussion yeah, about sure. could he be removed. And so he wrote this piece uh, and in September of 2018, and the New York Times published it as an anonymous opinion piece. Uh, he revealed publicly what Trump's cabinet members were saying privately, which is that he was unstable and unfit to be the president. And while serving in top roles at the Department of Homeland Security, he witnessed shocking acts of corruption that led him to write this essay. A year later, he then published a book and he decided he needed to unmask himself and he became part of the largest alliance of ex-officials in modern history to help take down the ex-president who had appointed them. And a lot of Republicans that were in the cabinet had decided to come out. By his own admission, Trump spent two years, and I mean by Trump's own admission, spent two years eyeing everyone who entered and exited that Oval Office because Trump was desperate to find out who was this person that had, right. you know, had outed him. The president, who's constantly saying he's allowed to say things, to say whatever he wants, it's all First Amendment, I'm allowed, First Amendment, First Amendment, uh, tweeted after the release of this anonymous piece that he was demanding that the New York Times hand over whoever anonymous was for, quote, national security purposes. Obviously, the First Amendment be damned at that moment because Trump wanted to know who it was. Right. So, of course, it's, you know, it's the First Amendment when you want it for yourself. It's not the First Amendment when it's hurting you. He claimed very openly he wanted revenge, which we've seen plenty of times from Trump. And he then launched an all-out assault against Miles while in Tampa, Florida at a campaign rally. Miles had received a note from a Secret Service agent suggesting that he get security team together quickly after they'd heard what Trump had said. And a Silicon Valley billionaire said he would pay for the protection costs. So he's got this new book out called Blowback. It's really about what would happen if Trump were to get back in office or someone like Trump in the mm -hmm. near future. Oh, it's a, it's a read, let me tell you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I couldn't put the damn thing down. Yeah. I read it literally. I read every single word of it. And some of it's quite frightening. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, just for our listeners anyway, you know, I mean, we are two guys from Hollywood. But to be honest, there's a lot more Hollywood going on in Washington right now. <laughs> <laughs> the drama, the drama, and the comedy. Well, so, this ties into our publishing, too. Of because course of it the does. Publishing. Yeah, it yeah. does. But, you know, just so you know, you know, uh, we are not limited to anything. We talk about everything and everyone. And we try and do the same with them. So anything that's interesting and has some sort of, you know, that you want to remember, we're going to talk about. So, and we're going to bring them on our show. So I hope you hang in there with us because we have a lot coming your way. And we'll uh, come back with Miles after the break. Thank you. We're back with Miles Taylor, who's joining us from um, some overseas port somewhere. And of course, he has written the recent New York Times bestseller, Blowback. And Miles, the first thing we want to say to you is we want to thank you for your service and the many hours you gave up uh, with your family to protect this country, or to at least try and protect this country. I don't know whether we'll get there or not. Thank you, Miles. And at least reminding us all that we do need to be protected. Well, I, I appreciate it. I appreciate you guys having me on. And... Uh... What we're not, of course, telling the listeners until right now is that we are having extreme technical difficulties while I'm overseas. There is a high wind warning in the place that I'm in. And so just to bring you into the room, it's knocked out the Wi-Fi. We're tethering to a foreign cell phone network, and we're going to try to make this work. And we're going to have a good time and hopefully talk about uh, the real things in life. <laughs> we can spend all the profits from your book on the phone bill. That actually brings up my, one of my questions. Are you still in hiding, basically? Yeah, the, uh, you know, the short, short answer to that question is no. Um, you know, there was a pretty difficult period around the 2020 election after I had turned against Donald Trump. I'd gone out and recruited a group of ex-officials to join me in opposing his re-election uh, and it got pretty bad. I mean, we had to move from apartment to apartment, had to leave my home. Uh, you know, and, and on election night 2020, found myself in a safe house under armed guard 
in Northern Virginia with a pistol under my pillow and a security team outside. Right now is nowhere near uh, what that was, but, you know, I always preface this with no one has to have sympathy for me. I went into this situation eyes wide open as a national security professional, but I use that example so folks understand how serious of an environment it is to go engage politically, uh, especially against the far right at the moment. Um, We have to take a number of security precautions uh, in our lives right now, a, a vast array of them. We still deal with stalkers. We still have restraining orders. And, you know, as you guys probably noted, I was unspecific uh, about where we're coming to you today. And that's just the nature of the beast is we've just had a steady stream of threats, especially after publishing this book. Um, you know, we got doxxed again, uh, which, you know, meant our personal information was dropped on the web and you get this avalanche of incoming the frustration isn't so much getting that avalanche. It's trying to figure out whether anything in there is something that needs to go to law enforcement. And uh, and for me, it's more of a concern about my family than myself. Well, to clear something up for our, any naysayers that might be out there, I know on the first book that you did, you gave away all the profits, but you probably don't have a job at the moment as you're running away from everybody. Are you keeping the profits on this book? <laughs> uh Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I wanted to be really intentional when I wrote a warning that people not confuse the reasons why I was doing it. Now, I will be brutally honest with you. For a kid from a small town in Indiana, you know, little 15-year-old Miles Taylor would have said, why the hell are you giving away potentially millions of dollars? Um, But in that moment, in 2020, in 2019, and 2020, when I was out there, especially going against Donald Trump, I didn't want anyone to be able to say I was doing it for money. And um, and I ended up losing my job. I ended up not having a source of revenue. And that decision, uh, if I'd made a different one, certainly would have been favorable to me, but I didn't want to send that message. I, I would be lucky if the book Blowback sold nearly as much as uh, as a warning. Um, but I'm actually still planning to donate some of the profits of this book towards a, a number of different pro-democracy causes I'm involved in. Uh, but yeah, hopefully it helps uh, at least modestly make sure that me and uh, my wife, Hannah, can continue to do what we do. Uh, so you have a new wife because the old one left you over the other book, correct? Uh, in the course of going out against Donald Trump, I, I lost my marriage, yeah. Uh, as you guys can tell, 2020 was a real banner year in, in Miles Taylor's life. Just a real, just a real one hell of a year. <laughs> you know? I mean, I could, jo- I could joke about it now, but I mean. Well, I see it didn't slow you down about jumping into a new marriage. Yeah, you get, well, you know, you get people out there who just give you kind of the bullshit answer. You know, you get politicians who bullshit you. You get people who go out and just don't actually talk about what it's like to be out there in the arena in this moment? And the answer is, you know, in, in the words of, of Jerry Maguire, it's a pride swallowing siege every single day. And yeah, in my, in my case, it did cost me a marriage. Now, I was really lucky because as I was hitting, frankly, rock bottom amidst the deluge of threats and public scrutiny, um, I ended up meeting the love of my life. And, 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 and I credit her in the book with actually saving my life and not to take us to a dark place so early in the conversation. But that's how bad it can get in politics is I was in a very, very dark place. Um, and, and I'm very lucky I met the person I did when I did. And she did uh, save my life. But, you know, the fact that we don't have those frank and honest conversations means a lot of the turmoil that's lurking underneath the surface in our politics goes unexplored and unanswered. So. As much as it feels like I'm completely naked in front of people writing a book like this and having conversations like this, um, you know, I, I think we need I think we need more people doing that. So um, and so for those listeners who are, you know, don't have video, um, I, I am indeed completely naked tonight in the conversation uh, with Joey. And Al. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that was a, that was a prerequisite, you know, when we uh, when we approached you. Yeah, they stipulated that it. it was very weird. I got this email and. Yeah, must be completely naked. <laughs> but the bigger concern completely. is that I said yes. <laughs> I said yes to that email, uh, and, and here we are. <laughs>
And you even agreed to stand up occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> well, the joke's really on you because we don't even post video. So, <laughs> so this is all imagination. Yeah. You know, that poor person who's sitting there right now and is like, I think we just scraped to the surface of suicidal ideation. And now these three white dudes are talking about getting naked. What is happening on this podcast? Naked. And you know what? They're clicking the subscribe button at the same time because they're like, if they did this with this guy, what happens next? <laughs> yeah, I will tell you this, though. I know for me, in a, like we talk about the world being what it is and how horrible things are, and, and there's never a better time to laugh than those moments. That's what's going to save us amidst of everything else that, that you're letting, us, letting the world know through what you've done to, to expose things and to realize things. But we've got to keep that sense of humor or, or we are totally, totally sunk. Yeah, I, I would agree with that completely. I mean, you know, I, I have spent most of my career in the national security community. I never wanted to go into politics. In fact, I hate politics. Uh, I don't even consider myself to be working in politics. I went into government to work in public policy. And that was after 9-11. I went into the national security community, and I wanted to work to make sure a day like that never happened again. But in the course of working in the national security community, you spend every day in these facilities called SCIFs, Secure Compartmented Information Facilities, where you're reading the most serious classified information, you're dealing with genuine life or death threats, uh, and you know you have to bring levity into those moments and those places, or you can and will quite literally become deeply clinically depressed. And um, you know, so I consider myself. Joey and Alan to be what I call an optimistic fatalist. And it, it's that I recognize that nature destroys everything that it creates, but it also creates from everything that it destroys. And somewhere in that process, if you don't laugh at the deterministic nature of our universe, then I don't know, you're probably not going to be around long enough to understand it. Yeah. Yeah. We're back to dust. Yeah. Well, let's make it clear. So you are for our audience that's not really been following this or doesn't watch the news, uh, which is plenty, I'm sure. You're a registered moderate Republican, correct? Well, I, I recently left the Republican Party, so I'm a registered independent, which is kind of a contradiction in terms because in most places you can't register as an independent. But yeah, I'm a political independent, but I've spent my whole life as a conservative. I mean, look, and, and, and a number of your listeners will probably say, wait, he's still a conservative? Well, there's a big difference between being a Republican and being a conservative. The parties don't necessarily stick by their principles. My principles and values have never changed. I mean, I've always been a, uh, you know, a fiscal conservative and socially liberal uh, my whole life. But, you know, it was it, it kind of to steal Ronald Reagan's work. You know, he once said, I didn't leave the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party left me when he flipped over and became a Republican. I would say the same thing about the GOP is. Uh, you know, I didn't leave the GOP. The GOP left me and went, in my opinion, in a very, very dangerous populist direction. Um, and, you know, uh, I'll wait and see what happens to the Republican yeah. Party. But right now, I'm, I'm I think a lot of people would agree with you. A lot of Republicans would agree. They feel they they don't know where they belong in that party. Yeah, it's, um, you know, a, a lot of folks that I've worked with in my time in you know the GOP, Adam Kinzinger, Liz Cheney, a whole array of them are now, in their words, politically homeless. And I think a lot of Americans feel that way, and not just on the right. I mean, I could spend all day beating up on my former party and sounding the alarm about some of the dangers that are still resident within the Republican Party. Um, but the fact is, you know, surveys show that Americans writ large on the left and the right increasingly feel politically homeless. And I think that that is mm -hmm. a bigger warning about the state of our democracy. Now, I certainly think a lot of the again, a lot of the concern comes from the far right and populist movements and actual violent extremist movements. But uh, this should be a wake up call for everyone that right now the system is not representing the moderate majority of Americans the way that it should. And, and we've got to undertake some real civic soul searching, if you will. Well, Joey, and I agree with you because we've brought that up on the podcast before, in fact. But I, I see in your book, I think you mentioned that something like six percent of the far left and eight percent of the far right, or I might have them backwards are representing the 84% in the middle. 
Yeah, there are there are just some some really breathtaking studies that have come out in recent years, and one of them that blew my mind, and I reference it in blowback, is the fact that roughly between five and seven percent of the most ideological extremes dominate the overwhelming majority of online commentary. Now, that's probably not surprising to anyone who's gotten on, you know, the internet. <laughs> but, you know, the but the data now shows it that the that the yeah. extremes really are driving the conversation and what that means is it's discouraging your everyday Americans from stating their views, not just online, but in real life. And in that same section, Alan, there is another survey, I think it's from Pew, that shows that Americans are increasingly self-censoring in real life. In fact, the moderate majority of Americans will misrepresent their actual views in public from what they are in private because people are afraid afraid of getting canceled. And I know that's a topic that you guys have talked to folks about from across industries, from Hollywood to Washington and beyond. But it's not just these mega centers mm-hmm. of power where people are afraid of getting canceled. It is, you know, Joe Johnson in LaPorte, Indiana is worried about saying the wrong thing at a barbecue because he could get canceled in the community. This fear is now pervasive. And I worry that it's causing people to self-censor. And that means we're not speaking the truth anymore. And when it comes to our politics, that can have some really perverse effects. In this podcast, we put our foot in our mouth constantly. (laughs) I put my foot in Alan's mouth, he puts his in mine, and we swallow feet all day long. And we're gonna keep saying what's not right. Let's just- But we're gonna say it. baseline again for listeners. All three of us are naked right now. Joey has already put Alan's foot in his mouth. And if this doesn't at least make, I don't know, Jezebel or one of the publications, then then people aren't paying attention to us. We're doing everything we can to get yeah, exactly. attention to us right now. <laughs> or Foot Fetish USA. Uh, you know, th- this is interesting, this topic you brought up, because there's somebody, I forget who it was, in the book says that people don't trust government institutions anymore or each other. And when the world gets tumultuous, they're more open to authoritarianism. Why and what are we not trusting? Yes, the world is tumultuous. Things are changing very quickly. You know, people were just accepting that gays were getting married, and then suddenly there was a movement by trans, and then there's the bathroom thing, and there's so much going on. Do you think that this this liberal movement that seems to be going very quickly has caused a counter conservative movement because people need time to get used to change i actually think it's more dire than that and um and and it goes deeper than i think just conservatives reacting to progressive social policies because what's interesting is you actually see a lot of young conservatives are also socially liberal i think there's a deeper darker force at play and that is that at least one side of the political spectrum has convinced half the country or almost half the country that democracy's guardrails aren't guardrails at all. They are barriers to getting things done. And there's now this deep, deep anti-institutionalist mindset that our democratic institutions themselves need to be detonated so that major reforms can take place. And some of those are conservative social reforms, but others are very autocratic in nature and completely contrary to what the founders had intended. Um, But we've seen this story throughout history, and we've seen it since antiquity, 2,000 years ago, is that populism in all of its forms tends to lurch towards authoritarianism. And it sounds really crazy to say that in the United States of America right now, and I am a student of history, and every time something like this has happened in history. Contemporaries say, it sounds kind of crazy, but, and then they are in that moment. And we are in one of those moments where we need to realize it's not crazy anymore. It's not hyperbolic and it is happening here. And, and you don't have to believe me or Alan or Joey. If you go look at the data, anti-democratic sentiment, and I don't mean the democratic party, I mean anti-democracy sentiment, is at an all-time high right now. And that overall anti-institutionalist sentiment, whether it's the news media, whether it's politics and government, or you know large businesses and corporations, is 
again at a high watermark, and that spells a lot of possibility for turmoil. And for a national security professional like me, what we see in that data is a much higher likelihood of uh, political motivated violence. And we are seeing a spike in politically motivated violence. And and I hate to say it, but there has been a surge in Mm -hmm. assassination plots and attempts on public leaders, a five-fold surge in death threats to members of Congress. And I could go on and on and on um, you know, fortunately, with the exception of the January 6th insurrection in Washington, D.C., we haven't seen that manifest itself into a full-fledged crisis yet. Um, but I would say if you thought the past 10 years were bad, you ain't seen nothing yet because the data is really, really alarming those of us in the national security community. And I don't want to be completely pessimistic about it because we always have the chance to turn that around. But we are talking about numbers in terms of domestic violent radicalization, unlike anything that DHS and the FBI uh, have seen at least since 9-11, but likely, you know, in the past 30 or 40 years in aggregate. I think the statistic was in the five years after Donald Trump was elected in 2016, the number of recorded threats against members of Congress increased by more than 400 percent to 9,625 threats in 2021 alone, and that lawmakers have told news outlets that they're living in a state of fear and some are actually changing their votes for safety reasons. And many representatives retired after his presidency because they had feared for their family. Yeah, there was one person I spoke to for blowback, uh, a former Republican member of the House of Representatives, who in the course of our conversation lifted up his shirt to show me the pistol in his waistband uh, and went on to explain that his wife, his children had also gotten their concealed carry permits, not out of an abundance of caution, but because of direct threats and that they had been confronted in their places of uh, business and at their home. And this is one of the people who had spoken out. And his message to me was, Other Republicans have seen what happened to me, and a lot of them share my views about the ex-president Donald Trump. But after seeing what happened to me, he said, they're not going to come talk about it publicly. And I hear that story again and again and again as I go around the country, is people not just worried about getting kicked out of their party, people actually fearing for their families and their lives when they speak out. This is not the same America we were living in 10 years ago. I mean, if I'd quit the Bush administration and I worked in the Bush White House, you know, people, if I'd quit the Bush administration, turned against him, you know, I would have kind of been disavowed from the Republican Party, but I would have gone on living my life and that would have been fine. In fact, Bush's former press secretary, Scott McClellan, quit his administration and spoke out against him and wrote a book. You know what happened to Scott? He's got a great teaching job, I think, in Washington State, and he's just fine. To my knowledge, he never experienced death threats. The people who quit the Trump administration and turned against him, among, you know, as well as members of Congress and public servants at the state and local level, uh, have faced far, far more serious consequences. It's one of the reasons I use this term blowback as the name of the book is because we've entered an environment where it's gotten violent and physical and that's not how democracy is supposed to be. Well, it's interesting because I'm, I'm representing a new book called Germany's Past, America's Future. And you bring it up in a few places in your book about Hitler's tactics and how he came to power. And it is absolutely uh, scary how much of the Hitler blueprint Trump has followed, including, you know, Hitler had the brown shirts and now Trump's got all these people going out and beating people up. I mean, Hitler had all these outlaws. They're beating people up and making them change votes. The interesting thing is that a lot of the people who support Trump, as they did with Hitler, found out in the end that their demise was caused by their support of their leader. He turns on them because they are the people he liked least. And Trump has even said, I'm so glad COVID's come along or something to those words, because now I don't have to I don't have to shake hands with those despicable people. It, it's similar to what Hillary said about the, you know, the deplorables. He's saying the same thing. He just doesn't have the vocabulary. He said, I don't want to shake those despicable people's hands. And they support him. <laughs> and, it, it, and it's one of the things that I think is actually most effective in getting people to open their eyes is 
folks are willing to tolerate a lot from a bad leader. What they're often not willing to tolerate is finding out that that person actually despises them and is trying to take advantage of them. And it's one of the reasons why me and a lot of others have tried to really shine a light on Donald Trump's grifting tendencies. The fact that, you know, according to sources, you mm-hmm. know, majority of the money he's raising right now for his presidential campaign is going to pay his legal bills to keep him out of prison. That's grifting. These people aren't helping his presidential campaign. They're, you know, keeping a likely criminal out of a jail cell, and they don't know that's where their money's going. And that's who he is. But I don't think the comparison to Adolf Hitler is an extreme comparison. And, and this is a really easy, clickbaity way for people on the far right side of the political spectrum to say, oh, you can't take these anti-Trump Republicans seriously because they've compared him to Hitler. Uh, but, you know, it, I've talked to a number of historians and, and, and perhaps one of them is the person, Alan, that you're repping for for the book on Nazi Germany and the parallelisms between autocrats often tend to be very, very similar. And and here's a couple of pieces in those conversations with historians just about Hitler and not talking about Donald Trump. I want to just give you a couple of data points that were the most common things historians told me about Adolf Hitler. And I've done my share, fair share of reading. I boiled them down to this is that Hitler pretended to be a man of the people, but detested working men and women, acted like a deal-maker, but easily broke his promises, ignored experts, but was said to be, quote, seduced by himself during speeches, called for opponents to be locked up, but fretted about getting convicted himself, manipulated the media for personal gain, but attacked the lying press as enemies, vowed to root out corruption, but abused his official powers, (laughs) knows that small lies aren't believable, but believed big lies would become gospel and built his cause around a pledge to make the country great again while threatening its very foundations. You can't draw the parallel. You're an idiot. That's exactly it. Yeah, it's exactly it. And when you read this book I'm representing, it's really, he never brings up Trump's name. That's not the point. He's not trying to compare them. But as you read it, All you can do is notice, oh, we just did that. Oh, Trump just did that. Oh, Congress just did that, right? It's the same thing over again that's moved moved them closer to the ability to take down the democratic institutions that keep them safe. The only difference that Hitler made sure his army was attractive. Joey said it. I didn't say it. I'm not Joey even going to go there. I mean, here's, here's, one of the, here's one of the weird-ass things is we're in the year 2023, and, like, you've got public figures saying the Jews are trying to keep them down, and, you, you know, you've got racially motivated mass shooting attempts insane shit that we would have never thought we would see in 2023. I mean, the the moment that I left the Republican Party officially, and there was probably 20 better moments for me to have left the party and become an independent, but was last year after the mass shooting at a grocery store in New York State that killed around a dozen black Americans. And the shooter cited the great Mm -hmm. replacement theory as the reason he engaged in that shooting. What is the great replacement theory? It's a conspiracy theory that there is a secret cabal of people trying to replace white Americans deliberately with people of another skin color. Ridiculous, provably false. And yet, surveys show 52% of my former party's political base, the GOP, now believes in the great replacement theory. That is mind-blowing. That was not the case the year before Donald Trump became president. And the uptick in belief in provably false conspiracy theories isn't just making our politics go haywire. It's actually getting people shot and killed. And we just saw that uh, you know, the other day. There was uh, a shooting that was racial, racially motivated uh, you know, here in the United States. And, and we're seeing those numbers again go off the charts. It's not where any of us expected to, us, you know, expected to be in the 2020s. I think we could have all assumed or hoped that religiously motivated and racially motivated murder would be a thing of the past. But instead, 
uh, we're, we're seeing these numbers on the rise. And it's, again, indicative of some really vitriolic rhetoric in our politics. And they're done from young people in their 20s, just starting their life that barely can figure out where they're going to go tomorrow. And they're trying to grab somebody's ideals and make a point which is moot, which doesn't exist. I mean, and they're killing people for no reason, innocent people at a dollar store because they don't like black people. Because why? Well, you know, that shooting in Buffalo, New York. They're not really sure why they don't like them. Yeah, that shooting in Buffalo, New York had eerie echoes to me of another one we saw while Mm -hmm. Donald Trump was president. And I will never forget the mass shooting that killed more than 30 people in El Paso, Texas. And when they found the manifesto of the shooter, the second it hit the news, I knew exactly where it had come from, is over and over again, the shooter referenced an invasion at the southern border. And it was the language that the president used, the ex-president Donald Trump used, all the time in our presence, whether we were with him on Air Force One or in the Oval Office, he was adamant that we call it an invasion at the southern border. And you know why I refuse to use that terminology? Because I didn't consider it an invasion at the U.S. southern border. Whatever your politics are, and the southern border is not completely secure, that's a separate issue. The vast majority of people arriving here at our U.S. southern border are honest, hardworking, freedom-loving people that want to come be a part of the American experiment. We should be so fucking proud that millions of people will risk their lives to be a part of the United States, and maybe we should go a step step further and fix that system to make it more reasonable and secure and more efficient for people to come join the American experiment. I mean, I saw a joke that someone said a couple years ago about, uh, you know, being astounded that so many people would arrive at the southern border because our neighbors to the north were like the people who live in an apartment building above a meth lab, looking down saying, what the hell is happening down there? Uh, you know, that we should be so lucky that people still wanted to come here, given all the chaos. And want to work. For well, sure. Well, maybe what we should be doing is spending money. I mean, a lot of them are fleeing autocrats and fleeing governments that don't work and poverty and where they're being persecuted and they're coming north. And maybe we should be spending some of that money fixing where they're coming from so they don't want to come in the first place. I mean, nobody likes to leave their home. They leave because they feel they have to. Yeah. I mean, the vast majority of people who come to the United States who are are fleeing violence or persecution or a terrible, terrible, you know, catastrophic, uh, you know, job environment. And you're absolutely right. If we were better at investing those dollars, we could help make sure that a high tide lifts all boats. And there's just been really, really backwards, anti-humane ways of looking at this challenge. You can be for security at the U.S. southern border and be for comprehensive immigration reform. In fact, surveys show that the majority of Americans want both of those things. The majority want a secure border and they want to reform the system to make it better for the people who want to apply to come here and safer for U.S. citizens. But because of our polarized politics, you would think that Washington could never get to an answer on that question. But it should be able to, because, again, the majority of Americans share that view. But, again, uh, you know, a very, very divided system has kept those views from getting operationalized in the nation's capital. Well, most Americans, you know, they look to the president, fix this, fix that. Uh, Gas is too high. Well, the president has nothing to do with setting gas prices. And nor does he have anything to do with the laws around the border. It's something Congress has to do. And of course, as a leader, he's supposed to encourage them to get in there and and try to do something to fix it. But this is a Congress problem. Both Republicans and Democrats have not dealt with it. They haven't dealt with it for many, many administrations. And I agree with you. I think most people say it's not good that a million people are coming over the border every year. First of all, they're not being assimilated correctly. But secondly, it is unsafe and comes drugs and everything else over our borders. Everybody agrees they think the border should be safe. It's about how it should be safe. But I'm just wondering, as a former Republican and even now as an independent, you know, Interest rates are still high, but that looks like they're going to be coming down. Inflation is coming down. Um, the job market's looking very good with, with uh, jobs are incredible, with uh, unemployment at historic lows. 
And the stock market, as I watch my stocks, is up, up, up over the last few, few months. But I see Republicans saying, oh, you know, the economy's in a terrible place. I'm just curious, as a former Republican, what is it that you don't think the current administration is doing that satisfies your needs? What is it you would like to see an administration do that neither the Republican, the Trump, or the Biden administration is doing? Well, I mean, look, as a, as a political conservative, and I'm still a conservative, I always want to see a more efficient and leaner government. I, I spent a number of years working on Capitol Hill on the Appropriations Committee, which is the committee that doles out the cash. Uh, and in lean times, we were also the evil budget cutters. And I can tell you right now, most government departments and agencies could easily sustain a 10% cut. And that won't shock most Americans because most of us have worked in an office where we look around and we're like, eh, they probably could cut 10% of this place and we'd all be fine. <laughs> so your government, trust me, is the same way, yeah. if not worse. And so I want to see a return to an era of fiscal conservatism. But let me be clear, that's not the fault of this administration. We're not in the dire fiscal straits we're in because of Joe Biden. We are in that position because any number of presidents and congresses before him. In fact, one of my biggest gripes about Donald Trump, aside from many horrific publicly stated positions, was the fact that he wasn't a fiscal conservative. He was a reckless spender, and he's put us in an extremely difficult uh, fiscal environment. And at some point, it may not be what we're talking about right now, but at some point we are going to be forced in the next few years to tighten the belt as a country, whether it's a downgrade in our credit rating, whether it's a massive monetary crisis, whether it's a big recession, I hope it's none of those things. But the, again, back to the data, it shows that almost inevitably we're going to hit one of those moments and it's going to be worse than it's been because our fiscal uh, you know, health will be worse than it's ever been by the time we get to that moment. And that's going to be really, really hard. So, you know, I would like to see us returning to those types of debates in Washington. But look, it's really hard when you think your underlying system of government itself is at stake. And I think that really is what's at stake. And, um, you know, I, I don't know how many Trump supporters are listening to this podcast, but certainly at this point, uh, I've probably offended you. Uh, but look, if the guy gets reelected, <laughs> that's it, my friends. And I really mean that. That's it. I We're do done. not believe that democracy's yeah. guardrails can survive a second Trump administration. And mm -hmm. he's nope. still leading in the polls. At this very moment, 60% of Republicans want him to be their nominee compared to the other candidates. He is crushing the rest of the Republican field. And it seems that he's destined to be behind bars. This means we're careening towards a potential constitutional crisis. So as much as I would like to debate with Democrats about fiscal responsibility, right now I continue to team up with the left to make sure that someone like a Donald Trump or Trump himself doesn't return to the White House. Once we figured out that problem, we can go back to debating whether or not Barack Obama should wear khaki suits and whether Michelle Obama was right to make kids' lunches healthier and <laughs> blah, 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 blah. <laughs> I, I'm actually surprised Republicans, uh, you know, are supporting him, knowing that he's going to be going through all these trials. He, he can't run a country and still try to save himself uh, in court for the next two years. It's impossible. And, you know, voting him into office would just be a huge disaster in so many ways, mostly because he's not even going to be present. He's going to be in court all the time. So I don't quite get that. But I have one other question for you. What, what is it that you think, what is it that the right-wing Republicans, the Marjorie Taylor Greens and that group, what is it that they're after? Because I don't understand what it is in all this rhetoric they have. This is, most of it's sort of kooky talk. But what is it that they want? That's what I don't understand. <laughs> you know, I think the absurdity of that question. Not that you asked it, Alan, but that so many of us are having to ask it should in and of itself be a blinking red light is that we don't even Tell understand us. what a huge segment of 
uh, you know, the radicalized political elite wants. And the short answer, in my view, is that they don't want constraints to projecting their view of what America should be, is they don't want to exist in a system in which they have to compromise on issues that they believe are existential. And I'm going to obnoxiously again say, go back to surveys. The Pew surveys, for instance, continue to show that more than ever, Americans now say that the other side politically represents an existential threat to their way of life. And for the first time ever, a couple of years ago, um, I think a slight plurality of Americans stopped describing their opponents as opponents and started describing them as their political enemies. This type of rhetorical shift exemplifies especially what we are seeing on the far MAGA right, is they believe that progressive social policies, progressive fiscal policies could destroy their lives and their country. And so they are fighting as if they are under terminal threat from the other side's political views. And you see that. That's why you've seen this anti-democratic sentiment cropped up, is they are propagating this notion that the system itself, that the democratic system, is flawed and faulty, and therefore they have to go around the system. I mean, look at how the justice system itself is being attacked. You have the far right saying that the justice system is not to be believed, that the FBI is completely corrupt, that the Justice Department's corrupt, and that you can't trust the institutions, including the judges. And you know what's happened? Americans are buying it. We are seeing the lowest level public support of judges that we've ever seen in the modern era. And it used to be, just five or six years ago, when you would ask Americans about institutions they trusted, usually among the highest institutions of trust were the military, police, and judges. And we have been seeing those numbers plummet. Americans mm -hmm. increasingly no longer trust law enforcement. They don't trust the justice system. And political leaders are spreading this narrative that the system itself is broken. And so, you know, you are seeing people like the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world want to, in their words, root out the deep state, which is shocking to me as a Republican, because we spent years and years saying that we would back the blue and we stood behind police and, you know, believing that the majority of FBI agents administer their duties in a nonpartisan manner. And now the party is the party saying, let's go detonate law enforcement and put our guys in there. And that's the part that's scariest to me, is not just that they're alleging corruption inside those institutions, is that they are openly admitting we should get rid of the civil servants in those institutions and put partisans and political figures put in Put the there. Proud in fact, Boys in. In, just within days, you know, just days ago, there was more reporting from the Associated Press about something that I talk about in this book, Blowback, about how they are, you know, the MAGA movement's developing active plans in Washington right now to fire at least 50,000 people from the U.S. Civil Service on day one when the next MAGA president takes the White House and replace those individuals with hardcore conservatives. So it, and it sort of defies their logic is they're saying, well, there's a deep state and the government's too bloated, but they're not saying we're going to make government smaller. They're just saying we're going to go detonate it and replace it with our people. And there's a quote that I have in the book from Steve Bannon. Right. People who think like people. we do. Yeah. Yeah. He says, we are training the next generation of assassins. He refers to these people they want to bring into government as assassins. And I think that tells you everything you need to know about the character of the types of folks mm -hmm. they want to recruit into the next Trump administration. With a third grade education and no aim. So we're, we're really heading for some good times ahead. Do you think part of this has to do with our news service? Because that's how people learn these things. I mean, I know social media is a big part of it, but... It seems like that we started to go downhill when suddenly you could watch the news that supported your own ideology 24-7. And I, you know, we're very big in this house about flipping back and forth between Fox and MSNBC. And I'm shocked that when I flip to Fox, they're not even reporting the stories. They don't exist on Fox that are on MSNBC. But I don't find a lot of stories on Fox that are not on MSNBC. 
And I think people, you know, are getting different news and therefore they believe in different things because their news is different. And what happened to news service that you had to tell the truth or you lost your news license? It seems that it's all gone out the window. Yeah, well, I mean, first, obviously, someone needs to come regulate this podcast. It's gotten out of control. And, you know, I want to send a message today that two guys from Hollywood is breaking the system, spreading conspiracy theories and represents a national security threat. So I hope when you guys promote this pod in the future, I wish you would. It might get our listenership. Yeah, you say Miles Taylor refers to it as an active national security threat to the United States. So. We'll put that aside. The feds will surely come for you guys in due course. We're using that quote. <laughs> yeah. But uh, bigger picture, you know, look, I think we all recognize that confirmation bias is severe right now. And, you know, it, 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 it's affecting everyone. And it does affect both sides of the political spectrum. And you, you see it all throughout our politics. I do believe that the new media ecosystem podcasts and social media, as much as it fuels divisiveness, can also be a very, very powerful source of fact-checking. Some of the things that legacy media institutions did very poorly in terms of speed and reach, these mechanisms can do. So while a lie can get halfway around the world before the truth gets its pants on, the fact-checkers and the truth-tellers are also able to get their pants on a lot faster than they used to be able to. So it's not all bad news. And I actually, so I spent a a little period of my career at Google working as their head of advanced technology and security strategy. And there was a lot of folks focused on this question of when do we move past the age of divisive social media and what will it take? And in short, one of the things that a lot of experts have found is that this moment that we're in where a lot of the vitriol is done on tweets and message boards and in comments and on platforms where you don't get to see and experience the other person is largely because of that fact, is because you are not witnessing their human characteristics. And in evolutionary biology, they would say that empathy largely results from seeing another member of your species and knowing that they're another member of your species. You inherently want to protect someone or you'll treat them better if you see them in person and see that they are like you. So when folks are looking out at the next 10, 15, 20 years of technology development, they see the opportunity to reintroduce the human element into tech, to be able to see, hear, touch, and smell the person on the other end, rather than just lobbing a a tweet grenade over the digital wall and ignoring the fallout of that explosion. I'm optimistic about that because I actually do see us very slowly trending in the direction of augmented reality and virtual reality and platforms that will reintroduce the human element and lower the temperature. The much easier way to say that is what you would say in a tweet you wouldn't say to someone in the street. And technology is moving in the direction of making it seem more and more like you're on the street when you're in the digital square than you're just, again, totally separated from someone and, you, and it's so easy to dehumanize them. So hopefully we're headed that direction. But I, again, I think it's going to take some time. All right. I think I have one more thing, then we'll let you go so you can enjoy wherever you are, your storm. Um. <laughs> You've got creepy people on the internet Googling, where are there bad windstorms right where now is he? in Europe? All right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you hear so many people say Trump was the best president we ever had. And Joey and I have friends who still support him and think he was great. But when you ask them, what did he do for you? Why do you think he was a great president? The thing I hear most is he lowered our taxes. But my experience is he did not lower my taxes. My corporate taxes went down, but my personal income taxes went up. Went up. What has he done that we should be proud of or that we should be happy about? Because, by the way, immigration flow under Biden is as low as when Trump was in office. Biden just doesn't go around spouting about it and telling you all the things he's doing because they don't want you to know because then people start protesting. But, yeah, what what has he done that should make me like him? (laughs) Well, we've come full circles. Now Alan wants me to close out the podcast by saying, but here's why he might be a good guy. I mean, Alan, let me tell you. He's honestly the best president we've ever had. We probably never had a better president. 
No, we've probably never had a better president than him. He's absolutely fan. I, I've met other presidents. He's the best. <laughs> Honestly, just really the best. Um, look. Okay, uh, is, it, is it simply because he's strawberry blonde with blue eyes and six foot three and 215 pounds? <laughs> is that why? I got to tell you, I never <laughs> tried to pick the guy up when I was in the Oval Office, but I'm going to say he was lying on those forms he submitted to, to the prosecutors in Georgia. Like, you know, he had this little red button on the Donald desk that he Trump would press. Donald Trump never lied, ever. Yeah, he had this button on the, on the Oval Office desk he would press to get Diet Cokes and McDonald's delivered into the office, and... You know, a guy who hit the button that much doesn't end up weighing 215 pounds at, at his height and specs. But, you know, look, yeah. I, I think that good Thank things you. that happened during his presidency for conservatives were largely despite Donald Trump and not because of Donald Trump. I mean, I'll give you an example. During the administration, we actually put in place the most sophisticated architecture in modern history to protect elections and to protect America against cyber threats. Was that because of Donald Trump? No. In fact, in a lot of cases, he didn't want us to do things like that. And he was resistant to us fighting back against Russian interference in our democracy and somewhat ambivalent about election security protections. And so, you know, a lot of different things like that that happened during the Trump administration were because of him. And taxes are a great example. Look, the reason there was any tax reform was because of Paul Ryan on Capitol Hill when he was Speaker of the House. Love the tax reforms that happened or hate the tax reforms, that's who you should point to. Donald Trump's influence on that was absolutely negligible. The concern for me, going back to national security, is that when I witnessed the man in moments of decision and consequence, when he was making decisions about the lives of American soldiers, when he was making decisions about protecting the lives of American civilians, he was always reckless, inattentive, confused, and completely and entirely ignorant of the world around him in making those decisions in a thoughtful way to protect this country. And to me, that is first and foremost the most important job of the commander-in-chief of the U.S. Armed Forces and the chief executive of uh, the presidency is to protect the American people. And Donald Trump couldn't be bothered to do that. And in many cases, I felt like made very bad decisions against the advice of his team in ways that put the country in danger. Uh, whether it was flattering foreign adversaries and pushing against our allies or at points getting us to a place where, at, you know, at one point in the second year of the administration, we were worried he was going to accidentally lead us into nuclear war with North Korea. He was reckless to a fault. And that's just something, you know, I don't think any of us want to see again in the Oval Office. Um, but, you know, who am I? I'm the guy who came on and, and talked to Joey about footsie, and, and we talked about getting naked, so uh, I don't know. It's, it's, an, it's an easy way for the QAnon blogosphere to write me off. All right. <laughs> well, after this conversation, I think Joey and I have to have a drink. We're going to go drink. Yeah, we're going to go drinking. But you're no longer drinking, are you? I, I would have one. I am, I'm, I'm now uh, more than 18 months sober, and, uh, but I love a good mocktail, so I'll go have a mocktail in celebration. All there right. There you go. Well, we'll toast you. Thank you. We really appreciate it, Miles. Thank you, Thanks, Miles. Keep safe. Appreciate you having me on and keep doing Thank what you. you're doing. Battle, battle and that storm. Please redirect all of the hateful comments in the posts uh, over to my email address. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we'll do. We will. Including the ones we get. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Be Thank well. You, Take care. Bye-bye. This podcast is a production of the Villa Romana Network in association with Spotify.